0: You can open up your Bibles with me to the letter to Titus. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some over there in a stack. You can go grab one, but everybody will see you. But don't worry. It just means that you're interested in hearing what the Word of God has to say. You just forgot your Bible. That's all it means. Uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. We've been working our way, as as you've probably recognized, through the letter of Titus. We are looking in Titus chapter Titus chapter 2, of lives that are evidence that God's grace is upon it, and also lives that are evidence uh, of God's influence in the world. Lives that are evidence of God's grace and lives that are used as influence in God's grace and for God's grace. We're going to start in in verse 1. To be self controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. Show yourselves in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for these words, and we pray that you would use these words in our hearts and our lives to train us in the way that we should go, to instruct us and to also motivate us for why we do what we do and how we can do what we do. I pray for every student here that your word would speak truth even into their heart and reveal truth in their heart. I pray that we would all come away from this message with knowledge of your saving, sanctifying work in the life. pray this all in your Son's name. Amen. As we were talking about last week and the week before that, this passage is Paul expressing to the church his sincere, earnest desire for that church to live lives that are fitting with sound doctrine. Or as we described it, lives that showcase the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lives that, that picture it. Lives that point it out and not distract from it. Lives that are fitting to it. Lives that magnify the message and don't distract from the message. Lives that you could even say, Show it. Prove it. Demonstrate it. Lives that are fitting with those who proclaim the gospel. Now I've got a question for you. Let's say you have a phone. Hypothetical number one. (laughs) Hypothetical number two, you you receive a text on this phone from a number you do not know. But this text promises you great things. It says, congratulations. <laughs> you are the selected one that has won one million dollars. <laughs> yes. Or that example. Real life to some of us. It says, it says this. You are the winner. You have been chosen. You're going to get fabulous prizes. Click here to receive those prizes. Now, this is a discernment test, right? Do you click there to receive those prizes? Abby Travado. Sometimes. Sometimes. Gotta admit, sometimes it's like, but what if it's true? <laughs> you know? Sometimes. No, generally you don't. Joke. Generally when you're on a web page and it says click here, prizes await, it means viruses await. Right? You you don't click on something unless it is framed in a way that fits the message and, and proves the trustworthiness of the message, right? That's maybe, perhaps, uh, illustration of what Paul is talking about here. Do your lives authenticate that this message is true? Do, do your lives show that this is the real thing, this gospel message is true, and you need to listen to it? Do your lives provide a compelling frame around the gospel that people see And are and are convicted by. Does your life proclaim the gospel? Once again, remember uh, the lifestyle evangelism is not what we're talking about. We're not, we're not saying here, hey, preach the gospel with your lives. people will be so compelled by your living that they'll come up to you without any knowledge of what you believe and say, do you know the Jesus Christ man? It's probably not going to happen that way. We're saying preach the gospel clearly. And live a life that is fitting with the very message that you proclaim. Otherwise, your life will distract, take away. It will, it will, it will give hearts that are looking for an excuse not to listen to you a reason not to live. Li- listen to you, won't it? Now, as we, we dig in here, I, there's a few things I want to say. First off, I, I want to tell you that, 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 that Jesus himself warns his followers that if you live a life that, that, that demonstrates that you're his follower, it's not going to make people like you more. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not saying live a life that will attract people to you and then they'll receive your message. Jesus warns of the opposite. He says, if they treat me me this way, how much more are they going to treat you this way if you live a life that that pictures obedience to me? They're going to revile you. They're going to hate you. They're going to reject you. And, And actually, tonight's message gives gives showcasing marks of the gospel that that perhaps bring more anger, uh, more resentment, more irritation to an unbeliever's ears than any other kind of application to the gospel. So we're we're not totally saying, "Hey, live a life that compels people to listen." We're simply saying, "Do your lives match the message that you speak?" Because human hearts will seek any excuse to not listen to the word of God that you proclaim, right? So this is a message for Christians. This is not an easy message, but it's for Christians. And the, the simple point of this whole chapter, again and again, is this. The grace of God that comes to you through Jesus Christ in the gospel transforms your life. And that needs to be showcased in your life. What you used to hate, you will now love. What used to be priority number one in your life will now be far down on the list of priorities in your life. And your life will go from showing the truth of your sin to showing the truth of God's grace in your life. Your life will be totally changed by the grace of God in your life. We've, we've talked about this. Verse 11, right? The, the, the grace of God has appeared and it trains. It sanctifies. You are declared instantly righteous before God. Clothed in Christ's righteousness. And God's grace begins to work on your life in sanctifying you and changing you. And demonstrating you to be a people of his own possession who he has redeemed from all lawlessness and all impurity. And now you are a people that's motivated by a new priority, to be zealous for his name and for his glory. And we need to live lives that are fitting that. That's what Paul is after. Tonight, I want to show you four characteristics, four characteristics that showcase the gospel in the next group's life. Four characteristics that showcase the gospel. We've seen it in older men. We've seen it in older women, and now we're going to see it in younger women. Now, younger women is referring to get this: any woman who is not old. <laughs> Deep stuff. But actually, it refers to women probably you know around marrying age, all the way up to sixty. So there isn't someone in this room, probably, that this doesn't uh, apply to if you're a woman, of course. Um, That being said, I should specify that uh, these young women in particular might not be exactly like some of you. It's very clear from reading this that Paul is actually referring to a certain kind of young woman. And that young woman is someone who is married. Uh, Four out of the seven qualities that we see here tonight... Four of the seven qualities imply that this young woman is married. So, I know you girls were so excited about tonight. Finally, a message that applies to us a little bit more. Sorry. But not sorry. Right? This does have application to you. I would say it does still apply to you, right? You should be always preparing for something that's going to be the majority of your life. For the most part, all of you are probably going to get married. So this gives you an opportunity to prepare beforehand to think about the kind of qualities. And like I said, not all of these qualities directly relate to a woman who is married. So there's always application there. Do you have the heart that is becoming these qualities that the gospel demands? And now the the other question, young men, you're not out of the woods either, I would say, because you will notice, and I read intentionally over verse 6-8 through on purpose, because that's what intentionally means, to show you that there are a lot of parallels between the calling for a young woman as there are for a young man. So do yourself a favor. Instead of just getting gut-punched next week when we talk about young men, just prepare convictions quietly in your own heart right now. Just start being convicted from afar so it doesn't hurt, because next week it's going to be hard on you. So just get convicted now and skip that whole conviction thing. Now, finally, I, I am organizing by the way, seven points into four, four points. So seven qualities. I I read seven qualities here, but I'm only going to give you four characteristics. Now there's a reason for that. Obviously. Number one, we struggle with the number seven. We really don't know what number seven means. So we're going to shorten it. Also, that was a joke, Joel. Um, I think it's easier. The shorter the list lists are, the easier they are for you guys to maybe grab and grab a hold of. I, I, I uh, do find that many of these um, qualities, characteristics kind of go together, so it's, it's appropriate for us to put them together. And I would also suggest to you, and I'll try to show to you and demonstrate to you, that these there, there do seem to be an intentional pairing of, of six of the seven qualities. Six of the seven qualities seem to go together as they are listed next to one another. So we're going to link them all under one... Heading Four characteristics that showcase the gospel in a young woman's life. Let's look at it. First characteristic that showcases the gospel. Number one, her affections show the gospel. Her affections show that the gospel is not just heard by her, but received by her. And truly taken in by her. Her her affections demonstrate that her faith is true and genuine. And just where you get this idea of affections, look at verse verse four halfway through uh, talking to the older women but bleeding into the younger women uh, train the younger women to, number one, love their husbands and number two, love their children. Uh, basically to, to kind of zoom it out, she is known, By the fact that she has affection or love for the people in her immediate circles. This, notice, is not saying she is known for dealing with, enduring, suffering through people in her immediate circles. No, no, she is known for loving the people in her immediate circle. That's what she's known for, she's characterized by, she loves them. Now, there's two Greek nouns here, they're not actually verbs, we don't have the verb love. Here it's just words. Paul likes to use these things called compound compound words. That's kind of like two Greek words combined into one to make one word, and it's just one noun, like I would say uh, uh, a man or or uh, someone like that. There's two Greek words here. The the verb is is not the loving thing. It's just one little noun. Um, the first uh, Greek noun here is philandros, and you you see the word there that we get. Andros, Andros, which means man. Andrew, the word Andrew comes from the Greek word man. And then you have that other word connected to it, uh, phila, phila, or from the verb phileo. And basically what this word means is a compound word. This is too too complicated for you all will try to stop talking. Uh, it's, it's a compound word that means basically she is a husband lover. That's what she's characterized by. Now it sounds weird to say it like that. So I'll just say it like this. She is a husband lover of her husband. She is characterized by love for him. And she's also, uh, let me try to say this, philotechus, technos, philotechnos. That is the word love of children, a child lover, someone who loves children. Now, Now, once again, that's two nouns that both start with the same kind of verbal root, so they're very connected. Do you see how they're connected like that? Those two words, there's two separate words. One is love of husband and love of children. This is what characterizes her. Notice, those two words belong together. That's why I would say they demonstrate that her affections show the gospel. And this is also very interesting because, did you know, this is, this is the one place in the Bible where there's commands to a woman or a wife and the command here is to love her husband. Usually the command is to submit to her husband. But here we have Paul saying, let her be a lover of her husband. And that just tells you that submission and love go hand in hand. This is, this is something that fills out that command of submit. Now, once again, I, I told you about the word. It's related to the Greek verb phileo, which is one of the Greek words for love. It is a very interesting word to choose because normally in these kinds of concepts we see another Greek word used and that's agape or agapeo or however you want to say it. And and that word is is more of the long-suffering, sacrificial kind of love. But this word is usually something that we associate in more of a negative sense. This word, literally means she has affection for her husband she has affection feeling for her children that's not always what we see the gospel demonstrating but here it does it shows that or you could say it this way she has an affectionate love for the people in her circles because her life is first and foremost sacrificially intentionally choosing to love those people Her life is a demonstration of an agape kind of love, and it results in an affection for the very objects that she is choosing to love. Now, we're talking about feelings here. We're talking about being moved towards someone. That is not a natural thing. You don't naturally move towards the people in your circle, especially when they are difficult to live with, with this kind of love. That means this must be a supernatural kind of activity. This is the result of deliberate, intentional, active behavior on this woman's part. Or you could say it this way, she has trained her affections through consistent, repeated, deliberate actions of good towards those objects. And you know, after day, after day, after month, after month, she has grown in an affection for those people. Notice, notice, this is the result, not of the way she naturally feels in the morning, Not of how she naturally is by nature. This is the result of, what's the context? An older woman coming alongside her and helping her and training her in an affectionate love. This is not, oh, he's so cute. This is when he is not so cute, deliberately doing good to him despite what he deserves and letting the emotions follow from the actions. That's what this is. And by the way, isn't that exactly the way God has loved you? Not because you were lovely, but because he intentionally, deliberately set his love upon you? And in that context, his affections flow towards you? How can you grow in this way? Now here I'm talking to all of you. There is not one of you that is excluded from this application. How can I grow in having an affection, not just a, a dealing with, an endurance, but an actual affection for the people in my life? How can, I, how can I demonstrate a softness and a warmness towards them that can only be pointed to as an evidence of the gospel and of God's grace in my life? Well, here's an idea. Make a concerted effort to love tangibly the one in your life who is most difficult for you. Do that tomorrow. Make a concerted effort to love someone tangibly, practically. You could start with prayer for them, and then you could continue with actions of goodness towards them. Make a deliberate attitude to do something that you don't feel like doing, and pray that the Lord Jesus Christ gives you an affectionate love for that person, even though you don't even feel like it. You could do this by maybe spending deliberate time with that sibling that you don't like very much. Or spending deliberate time with that student that you don't like very much. Deliberate time that's full of prayer and intentionality. Now, don't do it right now, because that would be obvious. You don't like me. But choose your time right. Always keep your door open, ready to engage your sibling when they want to come in invite them to do and join you in doing something that you enjoy and you know they would enjoy do intentional, deliberate things that are full of prayer saying, Lord, help me to have a change of attitude towards this person help me to even have an affection for this person as you would have me to have it. Or how about this submit yourself to your parents while also praying to have an understanding mind for why their rules are in place Say, Lord, help me to have an appreciation for them in my life. Now notice, that is not an application for a young woman who's married. That is an application for you, a young student who is unmarried. These are things that we need to do as well. We need to deliberately do good for those who are most difficult for us. Praying that the Lord Jesus Christ will change our heart towards them. Your affections follow your thinking and your acting. Next characteristic that showcase the gospel. First off, her affections show the gospel. We see that and she's trained in that. But, but secondly, her control showcases the gospel. Her control showcases the gospel. The next two words we see are words that have control in her. They, they reflect her, her inner being and her outer being, and they're all attached to this concept of her being in control. The first word, you guessed it, is she is self-controlled. She is sensible. This is referring mainly to mostly what's inside her that always results in outward behavior. She is self-controlled. This demonstrates the gospel. She is prudent. She is thoughtful. She never does anything without thinking. And sometimes she does things because she thinks. Once again... Affections follow your actions and actions follow your thoughts this woman is self-controlled she is not driven here and there by her emotions by her passions by her desires but all of these things are under control in her life she is not ruled by them but she rules over them By the way, once again, this is once again the leading mark of all believers, right? This is the word that should reflect all believers. Every single group recorded in Titus 2 in some way or form has something to do with self-control in their life. This is the mark of the gospel on display in your life. You are under control. You're self-controlled. You, you show in your life that you are not lawless but under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that reflects and changes everything about how you live in this life. She is self-controlled. She's under control. And this is, of course, something that comes from the Gospel. The Gospel changes your whole entire relationship towards sin in your life. The, The Gospel brings you under the joyful control of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life and frees you from the bondage to sin. Another word that shows her control, control that showcases the gospel, you see it there, is the word pure. This is a word that refers to holiness or innocence. This is observable on the outside of her. This is an evidence of her genuine self-control. And now she is manifesting self-control with a, a, a mark of purity, holiness, innocence on the outside of her. This is often a word that's used in the context of sexual morality. She is pure. She, she doesn't parade things around that she shouldn't be. She is modest. She is modest in her behavior and her dress. She has a healthy shame over causing lust or bringing wrong attention to herself. She is pure on the outside, and it shows up in how she does everything. But that whole modesty idea is, is perhaps what Paul is referring to. It seems to be more of just a, a general statement. She is generally very modest. She is generally very pure. She has her, herself in the right place, in her mind. And that, that affects her behavior in public. Now, now, often, when we talk about modesty... With women, we always go in, in one direction, right? Well, what does your dress code look like? How short is your skirt, right? That's that's always what we're talking about. But, but I would suggest to you that immodesty is a whole lot more than just your dress code. I would suggest to you that uh, immodesty is not just a kind of outfit you choose to wear or a kind of outfit that you don't choose to wear. It's not a dress code that you follow, but I would suggest to you that immodesty actually started long before you decided what to put on. Immodest, immodesty is in the attitude in which you enter your room. It's the attitude in which you pick out your clothes. It's the attitude in which you enter any social gather, gathering. That is what immodesty truly is. It's in the heart of someone. And what is that immodest heart wanting? It wants to be seen. It wants to have attention. It wants to be noticed. It wants to be first. Perhaps this is a secret desire. Perhaps this is a very obvious desire. But this heart wants attention, wants to be first, maybe among the friends, first in the eyes of someone special, That is what an immodest heart often looks like. Maybe I could explain it in in a helpful way. What does immodesty look in a young boy's life? Well, not exactly the same. But it's similar, I would say. Immodesty demonstrates itself in an obnoxious, loud, foolish young man. Right? He's, he's seeking attention. He wants to be first in everyone's minds. He wants everybody to notice him. That's immodesty in a young man. He is demonstrating that he perceives himself as someone that deserves the highest attention. Because he's constantly thinking about himself first, right? Or maybe this would be helpful to explain it. I would say the opposite of immodesty actually isn't shame you're not immodest because you're so proud of yourself. I would say the opposite of immodesty is actually seen in something else. For example, if you're so ashamed that you're bound up by what everybody thinks all the time, that is not the opposite of immodesty. That is the same heart that drives someone who is provocative in their immodesty, right? It's the same heart that is seeking total focus on themselves, that can't get over themselves, who is the center of their life. The opposite, the opposite of immodesty, I would say, is what we see here. We see a purity, an innocence, a smallness in their own eyes, because God is big in their own eyes, Right? one whose attention can be on another but not for the wrong reason but for the reason that god has put them here on earth notice this young woman is under control and she's controlled by the lordship of christ his bigness his greatness is what preoccupies her mind and that leads to a self-controlled life and a pure life A life that's not going out of its way to bring attention to itself when her object is to bring attention to Jesus' life, uh, Jesus Himself. She is pure. And the next characteristic her activity shows the gospel her action her behavior shows the gospel clearly and then we see two more words that really do speak of quality and character of her behavior we see first that she is a worker at home and i'll remind you of the context here this is referring primarily to young married women so if you're not a young married woman you have to kind of apply this a little bit broadly And this, once again, is another compound word. Joins two words together, work and home. And no, it doesn't mean that she's really, really good at homework. It means she is working at home. She's a worker at home. She is busy at home. Busy uh, characterizes her. Diligence at home characterizes her. She she is characterized by uh, a busyness in household tasks. Now, this, this word underlines two things. First off, it underlines that her priorities are the home as her main occupation. That is where she sees her main occupation is. This is her priority. The home is where she's busy. The home is where she's working. The home is where she sees her, her main job. She may do other things. Paul is definitely not limiting her to always only being at the home, but he is suggesting this is where you see her work. This is where she sets herself. This is where she sees her priority. A a Christian woman who is marked by the grace of God has a desire to work from home because she is content and satisfied with the place God has given her for influence in her life that is in her home. God has placed her there. She has an affection that follows this perceived priority in her life. Once again, the home isn't the only place she's at, but it is definitely, noticeably, evidently the place she is primarily at. When you ask her what she does, when you look at her life, it is obvious she is, first and foremost, a homemaker. But this word also speaks to something else, not just where her priorities lie, but also her diligence as well. She is a worker at home she doesn't stay home because she's lazy she doesn't stay home because she's afraid of being on public she stays home because there is so much good that she sees for God's glory to do there she's too busy at home she is too satisfied in her work at home and notice this, this activity, this busyness at home is balanced by the other word. She is also kind. She is also kind. The word where we get the word good from. She is also kind in her behavior. When we are speaking of her of her being active, we're saying she gets things done. But she also is considerate, kind in how she does it. Or to say it in another word, she doesn't stomp over people to get things done. She is connected to people. She is kind and gracious in how she gets things done. So it doesn't matter where you fit on the personality scale it doesn't matter where your number falls on the enneagram or anything like that it doesn't matter who you perceive yourself to be whether you're more of a doer or a people person this says the gospel impacts you in both ways you become a worker and you become kind you become both productive and relational that's how the gospel shapes but how how does it do this I submit to you that the final characteristic here, quality that shows the gospel is key, is essential, is foundational. If you weren't listening to anything else, listen to this one. This is how she does this. This is why she does this. This is why she's okay with being like this, because of this final characteristic. Are you ready? It's not what you think it is. I know what you guys are probably thinking. It's not her submissiveness. Although it's related to that I would submit to you a better word the first the final for fundamental characteristic that showcases the gospel number 4 is her humility her humility shows the gospel and this is where all of this other action and behavior flows out of and and just a to tell you something, Paul is definitely making an emphasis here of this final word. It, it falls out of the the pattern of noun, noun, noun that he's been setting that are connected to one another. And this word is a verbal noun. It, it brings out this, this sense of continual characteristic activity. She is characterized by this why Why does he emphasize this? Why is this last, this submissiveness to her own husband? Well, probably because this is the hardest one. This is the one that the flesh and the world will fight against you the hardest on. They will revile you if you submit to your husband. They will hate you if you submit yourself to your husband. Um, submission displays that you do not perceive yourself as Lord. Submission displays that you allow someone else to lead. Submission says, I, I'm going to follow someone else, and not my own will. By the way, this is not the kind of worldly concept of submission that we always hear paraded about against the Bible. This is not a silent submission that's under a burqa, living with her husband and enduring him. This is not an outward submission with an inward rebellion. This is not a, a taskmaster uh, for her master with the children. This is not a, a fearful sense of inferiority before all men. So she submits herself to all men or any man for that reason. No, this is something very else and very different. Notice, she they are to be submissive to their own husbands. This, it means she is not just... Not submitting herself to every man, but choosing, willfully choosing, to submit herself under one man. And she does this, why? Out of an inner sense of humility. Out of of an inner sense that she does not have to be Lord of her life. She does not have to be the one in control. She also does this in a way that's very different, right? For example, I would say all of these qualities should be pulled together and used to understand one another, right? This is not the kind of submission that the world uh, makes fun of or mocks. Look at what kind of submission this is. Even when he, her husband, is difficult and unloving, when they, her children, are thankless and ungrateful, she continues to act in love and seeks to train her heart to follow. Remember, her affections show the gospel. And even when the world mocks her and ridicules her for not being her own woman and putting herself under someone else, she continues to prioritize her place with peace and satisfaction. And even when her husband calls her to sin against the Lord, and even if her husband demands that he that she follow him in sin, she manifests an inward purity that shows she is truly only going to follow the Lord. Because she continues in purity. She refuses to be hit with any mud of impurity. Matter of fact, this might apply to her removing certain members of the family to protect the purity of innocence because that is her goal to maintain purity. Ultimately, she's under the Lord. Ultimately, she's self controlled unto the Lord. Ultimately, she is pure unto the Lord. And that's why this submission is very different. And why can she do all of this? Well, it comes back to that massive statement in verse 11, that one word, for. Not because she has chosen to. Not because her willpower is stronger than the next woman's next to her. Not because she's more naturally that way. No, it's because the God of the universe has appeared, and He has brought grace with Him. And the God of the universe... Has atoned, taken her sin on himself, taken all of the wrath of God on herself, so that she can be, as it says in verse 14, freed from lawlessness, from the condemnation of sin, and also from the power of sin in her life, because the gospel is training her. She demonstrates that she is humble unto the Lord, doesn't she? She has been liberated. And here's the surprise. That you didn't know it was coming. Because I'm just telling you. Big picture observation. Notice. She doesn't become this way mystically. She doesn't become sanctified by enduring quietly in her own room With the word of God and Jesus in her heart, that that might be a means that God uses in some situation. But notice, in the context here, she becomes these things. Why? Because she has older women in her life. It's implied, right? Verse 4, these older women are training these younger women in all of these characteristics, right? Right? Christ's training in your life comes from being connected to other instruments of grace that surround you. Right? That's why we do youth group, by the way. So that you can get other people in your life that can help you, strengthen you in where you are weak. You become these things because you surround yourself, not just with the Word of God, But God's grace also comes when you are surrounded by the people of God. The gracious woman is someone who is not independent, not naturally gifted, but dependent on God's grace in the people that she hangs out with, in what she meditates on and thinks about, she is completely dependent on God's grace. And, and just one more thing. Notice how she shows humility. She shows it in, in the Lord of her life and how she can easily submit to anyone that the Lord calls her to submit to, even when it's difficult. But she also shows humility in her life by what motivates her, right? By what motivates her. Did you see the second half of verse 5? Do all of these things, particularly submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. That's what motivates her. The world is watching her and looking for an excuse to hate Christ and reject the message of the gospel. And she says, no, I do not want to give them an option, an out. To hate the gospel and reject Christ. Notice, the world will probably revile her for her lifestyle. But she doesn't care about how the world treats her. She doesn't care what other people think of her. She mainly cares about what other people think about her Christ and her Savior and her God. That the word of God may not be reviled be blasphemed this is the woman of grace why is this message of the gospel so precious to her well it's because God himself in the person of Jesus Christ submitted himself to a shameful death to bear the wrath of her sins and because the God of the universe has chosen her To redeem and liberate from lawlessness so that she could be a person of his own possession. and Because that same God of grace is returning and she looks forward to his coming with all of her heart and all of her affections. Because she is no longer an enemy, but a daughter. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word that we get to study and read. And I pray that we would have humble hearts in even how we listen and how we apply it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.